please have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 10. And we see here the first example of the disciples of the Lord Jesus being commissioned to go. Commissioned to go. Now, the precise time scale, the precise order in which Jesus chose these 12 men who would be his disciples and apostles, that's not completely clear in the Bible. In Matthew's Gospel, we've seen already uh, the calling of Simon, Peter and Andrew and of James and John. That was in chapter 4. And recently, uh, in uh, chapter 9, we've seen the call of Matthew himself. Luke's Gospel, uh, that records all 12 disciples being named before the Sermon on the Mount took place. What is absolutely clear is that from out of a larger group of disciples of unknown number, Jesus chose these 12, and they would occupy a particular place in his ministry, and of course later on in the church. They were being prepared for the leadership role which they would assume after Christ has died and risen and then ascended back into heaven. And I want to consider three particular things with you this morning. And the first is this, being a disciple of Jesus. And we could tag on to that the question, are you? Jesus had disciples before he had these 12. And these 12 were disciples before they became apostles. Luke chapter 16 verse 13 specifically tells us that Jesus called his disciples to him and from them chose 12 whom he also then named apostles. And we see them referred to as apostles here in Matthew as well, you'll see. Jesus, first of all, had disciples. A few of those disciples would become apostles. But Jesus continued to call disciples. To be a disciple is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a friend of Christ, a learner of Christ, to be acquainted with Christ, to be committed to Christ. Are you? As disciples, this put them in a place of fellowship with Jesus. They would walk with him. They would talk with him. They could ask him questions. They would sit under his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, is aimed primarily at them. They would observe how he lived. They would listen to everything he said. Jesus had a unique calling to place upon 12 of those disciples, but first they must simply be disciples. And the word disciple has a very particular dimension to it. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that there are many different words that are used to describe Christians. They're called believers, saints, sheep, stones, servants, soldiers. Uh, many of those names, of course, have a particular slant or emphasis. So what of the word disciple? It's often linked to being a follower of Christ, which we must be, but the actual word disciple has at its heart more of a sense of being a learner or a student. In Judaism, there were various theological schools. 
as we would describe them today, uh, run by notable, sometimes famous rabbis. And those who sat under their teaching would be considered their disciples. They were learners and students of those men. And so likewise with those who follow Christ. We are to be those who are learning from him and of him. At the end of the next chapter, we'll hear Jesus say that we are to learn from him. We have no wisdom of our own that will do us any good. We need that which he can give. Paul exhorts Christians again and again to have the mind of Christ. Being a disciple is far more than mere allegiance, like following a football team or staying loyal to your prime minister, if you dare. Being a disciple is being a learner, a student, producing an ongoing change of heart and mind and attitude and motives, a growing in understanding and in wisdom as you're learning of him. And that's done by being in fellowship and in communion with Christ. He urges his disciples, abide in me and I will be abiding in you, heeding all that he has to say and teach us. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he explained that building your house on solid ground is by being both a hearer and a doer of his word. Learn of me, he says. That's what it means to be a disciple. Is that the kind of disciple of Christ that you are and that you want to be and that you strive to be? A disciple of Christ is, by definition, someone who wants to learn and gives themselves to learning. That's what the word disciple means. For us today, well, we can't actually sit down with Christ the way the disciples did. We can't have Jesus come to us physically like he did to Thomas, like we've been just hearing. So how do we do that today? Well, we make use of the means of grace which God has given us. Means of grace, you say. I've heard that phrase. Means of grace. What's that? It's simply those things which God has given us by which we may know him, we may know his gospel, we may know God's saviour, Christ, and we may grow up in those things and be established in them. So what are those things, those means that God has given us? Well, he's given us the Bible, he's given us prayer, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, preaching, fellowship with other believers, the indwelling of Christ's Spirit, which is absolutely vital, and experiencing all of those things within the context and the setting of a local church. All of these things are God's means of grace to us, that we might, be, that we might become disciples, that we might grow as disciples, that we might be used as disciples of Christ. These are things that we're to actively use and embrace and be part of. And that's what you will do if you are his disciple. Are you a disciple of Christ? Wanting not just 
to name his name, which is wonderful and necessary. Wanting not just to say that you're a follower of him, which is wonderful and necessary, but that you are a growing learner of Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus is where it all begins. And actually being a disciple of Jesus is how it continues. Those 12 may have become known as apostles, but they were still disciples also. That was to be their life. It's to be your life and mine. A disciple of Christ. But then we see that there is a distinction of the of these 12, the distinction of the 12 apostles in the sense of what it is that makes them distinct amongst the other disciples. Well, it's very important to notice that they were not novices. They'd actually been with him for months. They were not called immediately to be one of the 12. They were called out from the disciples to be one of the 12. First of all, they were called just to be disciples. Then they became apostles. There are various things which God might have you do for him. But first of all, there needs to be a time of equipping and preparation and testing and proving as a disciple of Christ. We see exactly that in the qualifications for elders and deacons, which Paul lays down in his writings to Timothy and Titus. From out of the disciples, there will be elders and deacons who will be appointed, but they must fit these qualifications. Did Jesus know his plans for these 12 when he first called them as disciples? Of course he did. But only after what might be referred to as perhaps a period of probation or preparation did they become the twelve to be set aside for a particular role and responsibility. Some of you will know of the, the Christian writer Matthew Henry who wrote a wonderful commentary on God's Word. He said that the best preparation for ministry is acquaintance and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be a disciple. Uh, later on, following the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood and preached in the open, uh, we read this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what made all the difference for these men. That's what, that's what make, will make all the difference in your life, that you are someone who spends time with Christ, using those means of grace he's given you, that you might know him and commune with him. You want to be a school teacher? Well, you'll spend four years at university, plus a further year of probation, bef before they let you loose on those little darlings all by yourself. When you go to the doctor, you want to see all of those letters that they have after their name to show you that they put all the legwork in in order that they can be sat there with you in the surgery. You join the RAF to be a fighter pilot. They don't the very next day put a flying suit and helmet on you and sit you in the cockpit of a 100 million pound jet. It takes years. 
And Christ has those who will, he will use in particular ways and in particular capacities within his church, but a period of preparation and proving nearly always has to come first. Moses worked as a shepherd for 40 years and was 80 years old before God sent him back to Egypt. Samuel worked in the tabernacle alongside Eli from his early boyhood. David was anointed as king of Israel many years before he actually became the king. Jesus didn't embark upon his earthly ministry till the age of 30. It is normative for God not to appoint novices and to use people who are prepared. Yes, you may find exceptions. Yes, God can use exceptions. But they are exceptions because that's not typical. And these 12, these 12 are going to be particularly unique. It's absolutely clear in the Bible that the word apostle is only ever used of certain men. That's these 12 plus Matthias who would be the replacement for Judas. And Matthias was required to have been a long-standing disciple of Jesus and a witness to his resurrection. And then, of course, there would be one other, the apostle born out of due time, the apostle Paul. And Paul spent the best part of 14 years in seclusion, preparing for the work he would do. And it was only after 14 years that he would be recognized by the church in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus has just exhorted these disciples to pray for laborers to be sent into the harvest, and now Jesus selects 12 of them to be just that and prepare, is preparing them for their sending. These 12 were to be the answer to the, to the prayers that Jesus is asking them to pray. There's a very special avenue of labor ahead for these 12 men. Some of you, of course, are already very much aware of one name which stands out amongst them, Judas. We'll come to him shortly. But here are these twelve appointed by Christ, Simon and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas, who we've just been hearing about, and Matthew. Another man called James, Thaddeus, a second man called Simon, and Judas. Some of these men we know something about. Four of them we know were fishermen from Capernaum. Matthew, the former tax collector. The rest of us, the rest of them, they're almost strangers to us, really, in that sense. Some of them will come to the foreground. Some of them will remain in the background. How much could you write down about Thaddeus? Some of them are optimists, some of them are pessimists. One of them is a man who's zealous for the nation-state of Israel. The other man used to collect taxes for the Romans. Put them two together in one group. Jesus did. And there's Judas. Who amongst us can get our heads around the fact that Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve, knowing all about him? 
Judas reminds us of a number of things, doesn't he? He reminds us that in churches, things will never be perfect. There will always be those who disappoint. There will even be those who cause deep distress and even harm within churches. But that is never a reason to doubt God. Did Jesus get the choice of Judas wrong? Of course he didn't. Jesus knew all about Judas and still chose him that even through Judas, God's purposes would stand and be fulfilled. And to our astonishment, Judas played a full part as an apostle, as one of the twelve. He even acted as their treasurer and held the money bag. So much so that when Jesus dipped bread with him at the Passover supper, the other 11 disciples were still clueless that it could be Judas who was the betrayer. Such are the mysteries of God's providences. But we must never allow such things uh, to cause us to, to write things off when those amongst us from time to time will, will surprise us, disappoint us, distress us. The Lord, nevertheless, is still at work. He is still God. And even through such people, God can work and use such people to fulfill His purposes. We're very quick to question the Lord sometimes. We'll be thinking about that this evening. But Jesus shows us here the immensity of the infinite wisdom of God in choosing and using a man like Judas Iscariot. And all 12 of them receive this call as apostles. And the, the word apostle is different to the word disciple. The word apostle means a delegate or an ambassador to be the official representatives of Christ. Now, of course, that actually is true of all Christians as well, but these 12 would do that in a very particular way. God would use them in a very pivotal role in the life of the early church. On account of that, Jesus endows them with a unique authority and power which is given only to these 12, so that in a very real sense, they were able to go out and replicate the ministry of Jesus. The kinds of things that Jesus has been doing is now going to be multiplied through these 12. When you look at what they're able to do, everything that we've seen Jesus do miraculously, Jesus is conferring that same power upon them. They can heal people, they can cast out demons, they'll even be able to raise people from the dead. But only because Christ has given them that authority. They were very ordinary, unremarkable men. The only remarkable thing about them is how ordinary they are. But Christ would equip and strengthen them for that which he has given them to do. And that's a great assurance for us because you can be sure that whatever it is that he gives your hand to do, he will not call you to a particular calling and then abandon you and leave you to crash on the rocks. Wherever Christ may place you, in whatever situation he puts you, whatever hardship he may require you to endure for his sake, you can be certain that he will strengthen and help you, just as he did these 12. 
All that they do will be according to his power, working mightily in them. And that was the very testimony of the Apostle Paul. And that will be your testimony too as a Christian believer. It's all by God's power working mightily in us and through us so that he alone can receive all the honour and praise and thanks at the end of it. God will receive all honour and praise for the exploits of these men because it's all his doing. And all Christian ministry, even just living each day as a disciple, just getting through tomorrow as a faithful disciple of Christ, is beyond our wisdom and strength. But God will give you what you need in order that you may do it. And so that at the end of the day, you may thank him and praise him and worship him for his faithfulness and goodness and kindness to you. And often it's as we feel most weak that we can testify most fully of his strength and his unfailing love and grace. And why did Jesus choose 12 apostles? Why 12? Is that significant? Surely it must be. Of course it is. God's Old Testament Israel consisted of 12 tribes, plus the family of the Levites who served in the tabernacle. And God is about to make clear that his true spiritual Israel is being established. The good shepherd has come to gather in all the lost sheep from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the true spiritual Israel is about to be gathered in, as we've been considering in Romans chapter 9. And so that, that imagery from the Old Testament, Christ parallels it in the New by selecting 12 apostles. God is doing a new thing. It's going to be through these 12 men that God will establish his church. It's through these 12 men that the New Testament scriptures will become established and completed for our good today. And everything that we're in need of, the foundation for all of it will be established by God through these 12. God is doing a new thing and 12 are chosen. The place of the earthly nation of Israel is now almost completed in God's purposes. It won't be very long now until that great curtain in the temple which separated the people from the Holy of Holies, God will tear that curtain down from top to bottom because the old is being done away with. The new has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these men will hold up high the torch of the gospel in God's true spiritual Israel, which is made up of those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Christ? And he commissions them. And he has a very unique thing for them to do in chapter 10. And he prepares to send them out. And we're going to see finally Unique instructions, but common principles. There are unique instructions here, but there are common principles which, which run underneath them. Now, Mark tells us that these 12 were sent out in twos, in pairs. 
And you'll notice that Matthew actually names them in twos, in verses uh, two to four. You need to be very careful when you read these verses because these are unique instructions being given to a unique group of men at a unique time for a particular purpose. The gospel will come to the Gentiles and at the close of Matthew, we'll actually hear Jesus telling them that they are to make disciples of all the nations. But first, the message is to be taken to the nation of Israel. Israel has played a very significant part in God's plan of salvation, and to them, the gospel is first to be preached. John tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so initially, the gospel message is to be taken to God's own people, Israel, the nation. Very soon, it will be scattered far and wide. But for now, the disciples are to go to their own countrymen. We've seen Paul, in his letter to the Romans, speak of the many spiritual privileges which the nation of Israel enjoyed. And that's even going to include being the first ones to hear the gospel preached. In part, one of the ways in which we see God's true spiritual Israel the church being established is in the fact that so many in the nation of Israel rejected Christ. So many would not accept him. And all of these things are being woven into the tapestry of God's unfolding plan of salvation. And the instructions given to the apostles very much have these Jewish listeners in view. God has dealt so kindly with them and takes his gospel to them. There are lost sheep in the house of Israel. And there are lost sheep who are going to receive him. There are lost sheep who are going to welcome him, just like Anna and Simeon did in the temple all those years earlier. And again, Christ reveals his great compassion for them. And their ministry is to, be, is to be a reflection of everything that we've been witnessing so far in the ministry of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. They are going to be enabled and equipped to do all the kinds of things that Jesus has been doing, but the very vanguard of the work is preaching. Preaching. And their message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The promised Messiah is here the one who is the door and the way. He's here. The one who's come down to, to lay down his life for his sheep. He's here. He's arrived. The kingdom is so near. By him, entrance into the kingdom is found. And it's going to be a kingdom over which he is king forever. And to be a member of it, is to have him reigning and ruling in sovereign power and grace in your life and in your heart. So do you know Jesus like that this morning? Because friends, none of this has changed. The message is the same. By this Jesus, you will find entrance and a welcome into his kingdom. 
Through Jesus, you will find a home. Through Jesus, you will find a kingdom which is an everlasting kingdom in which you will have life everlasting. A kingdom of love and light and peace. Now, for Israel, they had these uh, miraculous confirming signs which the, the apostles were going to be able to continue for a while. For you and I, what do we have? Well, Christ has not left us alone either. He's given us His Word and He's promised that He works through His Spirit. And His Spirit comes to us and convinces us and persuades us as surely and as much as ever could be the case, even if Christ Himself was in front of us. Indeed, there were many who had Christ Himself in front of them and they rejected Him. Blessed are those who do not see, yet they believe. And we have not seen with our eyes the things that were seen in Israel in those days. But still we see, still we believe. This is God's grace to us through the power of His Spirit, opening blinded eyes and minds that we might see. Have you seen this Jesus? And it's the free gift of God's grace. You've received freely of me, he says to them. Freely give. You likewise must freely give of Christ. You're not in the gospel for what you can get out of it. Although that's what some do preach. But that's not true. The gospel causes you to give and to give Freely you've received. Freely you must give. Jesus never did anything for personal advancement or advantage. Quite the opposite, in fact. He gave of himself and at very great cost. Freely you've received. Freely give. And verses 9 and 10 are not to be used as a mandate to send missionaries to the other side of the world without any means of support and with no provisions. These 12 were not being sent to the other side of the world. They were going out into their own region, in their own country, to their own fellow countrymen where, verses 11 to 14, they could usually expect to be offered the kind of hospitality which was their custom, especially towards those who are God's messengers. But it is worth noting that Jesus is encouraging them to have faith to rely upon his providence and faith to rely upon his provision. And all of us need to do that. The work is the Lord's work. It's to be done in his strength. It's to be done his way. And it's to be done according to his provision and according to what he will supply. And of course, he'll frequently use other believers to provide, just as the apostles are to rely upon others here. So the specifics of verses 9 and 10 are unique to this occasion, but the principles which undergird it actually do apply to all of us. We are to rely upon the Lord like this too. The frequent testimony of the Apostle Paul is of the help and support and encouragement and the hospitality which he so often received from other Christians. 
Churches likewise are to extend and support those who, who we can in Christian ministry and, and in gospel work. So there are important lessons for us to take note of here. Now, over the next few weeks, God willing, Keith's going to be going back out to Nairobi. And a little after that, Mircha is going to be coming over here from Arad. So how can you be of help and encouragement and involvement with them? Do they have a need you can help them with? Are there needs that the believers in Kenya or Romania have and you, through Keith or Mircha, can help to supply their need? In the way that these apostles are, are being encouraged by Christ to depend upon him and yet to be provi provided for by others who will show kindness towards them. Well, likewise for ourselves, what kind of kindness can we show? What kind of support can we show to other brothers and sisters in Christ who also are in need of help and encouragement? And in our text, in these final verses, these, these are the people of Israel that they're being sent to. And there are people who should know better than to reject the message they're preaching. But Jesus is highlighting here the great division that the gospel brings into the world. There's going to be this great division amongst the people in Israel as the gospel is preached. There's always a great division between people wherever the gospel is preached. And the apostles are instructed to recognize this distinction between those who accept Christ and those who reject him. The apostles are to understand that there will be a fellowship and a oneness and a unity between themselves and those who receive Christ but a separation between themselves and those who reject Christ. And it comes across very clear in these words that Jesus uses, which might seem a little strange to us, uh, about uh, giving people their peace or uh, taking your peace back from them and shaking the dust off your feet. The reality is they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Jesus is bringing home this truth even to his own disciples. Even your fellow countrymen, if they reject Christ, they are not of his kingdom. And so in that respect, they're no better than the pagans if they, re if they reject Christ. And that's what this shaking off the dust of their feet is to bring home to them. People who reject Christ remain children of wrath and are not the children of God. And that's what the shaking, the dust off their feet is bringing home to them. As we've heard before, we're being reminded again, verse 15, to have been in a place of such spiritual privilege, yet to reject Christ is to bring upon yourself a judgment more severe than even the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah will know on the day of judgment. In all their violence, violence and vileness and immorality. To have been presented with the truths of the gospel and to say no. And especially to have been in, in a position where it's been done again and again and again and still to reject. And the shaking the dust off is a sign to those who remain under condemnation. And these verses 11 to 15 are 
to cause us with the, the apostles to see and understand the urgency of the work and of the task. What a commission it is, as he gave to these 12 on that day, to take the gospel of Christ out into the world, knowing that what people do with it will determine where they spend eternity. What you make of this Lord Jesus Christ will determine where you spend eternity. But first they need to hear it. So who will go and tell them? Will we be those who go and tell them? Will you come knocking on the doors with us this summer? Will you join a beach team or a Christian answer team with UBM? Will you talk with your next door neighbour? Help out at Holiday Bible Club? So many ways you can do it. So many people you can contact. So many lost sheep out there. Or maybe you're still one of them. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only means of entrance. Turn to him. Run to him. Repent of your sin. Cling to him. Hope in him. Trust in him. And when you've done that, follow him. Learn of him. And know that in him, you are saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that we've seen once more in your word. Help us, O Lord, to be hearers and doers. Take this word, O Lord, implant it in our hearts. Enrich us through your truth. And this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.